0: Today is November 3rd, and I hope you had a nice Halloween and that you enjoyed the Morgan Le Fay episode. There's so much rich material there, and as I mentioned last time, we're definitely in the Hecate time of year, the Morgan Le Fay time of year, in the dark goddess time of year where between now and the winter solstice things get pretty still and pretty inward. And we're embracing the death cycle and all that that means, the release, the incubation, the turning inward, all of that. So that's happening right in the midst of our Grail series. And if you haven't caught up with that, definitely begin at the beginning because there's an introduction where we sort of situate the material, and then we talk about the feminine origins that predate the Arthurian and Grail legends that most of us are at least somewhat familiar with. So we situate it in that way, and those feminine origins are sort of a new look at all of this. And just a couple reminders that broadly... We are referring to, in the context of our podcast, this Grail series, as the knights and the traditional stories that we're somewhat familiar with, representing those masculine disciplines that we engage with, like transurfing, training the imagination, etc., so as to honor this most sacred, precious feminine center, which has its value simply because it is. Because it is. It is the value of beingness. And that is another way of talking about the grail that is you, that is me, that most divine center within. And it's likened in feminine parlance simply because that is the archetype close to life. So it's not about men-women, it's not about gender, but that feminine receptivity. And if you remember, the knights tend to be situated around their ethical code as it relates to the round table, and it's sort of outward-moving action-oriented, whereas these feminine figures that we're exploring center around the imagery of the lake itself and that information i gleaned from kathleen and john matthew's the ladies plural of the lake and i love that idea of the feminine depth the feeling the emotive qualities that that come to bear on the beingness the qualities of the feminine that are indeed inspiring and central to masculine disciplines that surround them. So that is the 30,000 foot perspective again with what we're doing and last time we started in on our exploration of our first feminine figure which was Morgan Le Fay as you remember and we talked about the six figures of the psyche that are represented by the feminine and we'll touch on those each time we explore a feminine figure because it's just helpful to know where we might find ourselves in those roles or where others might be situating us in those roles if we're female or you know, performing or, or occupying those roles. I think just the broad awareness of that is really helpful because the roles in and of themselves aren't either good nor bad. It's just the way the psyche arranges itself And relates but it's when we project that onto humans or when human beings are trying to fulfill psychological archetypal roles etc where there can be conflict so just that broader awareness we will relate these feminine figures that we're exploring back to those ideas just for broad awareness and also the ideas of the well itself If you remember the elucidation, that poem that precedes all of the grail material. And that is very symbolic of touching the place in each of us that is sovereign, that is the divine, that has never known suffering, that has never known violation of any kind. And the qualities we have explored regarding that, if you remember, are mystery, Hospitality and justice. And so, again, we'll link the feminine figures that we're exploring in the Grail to those qualities and principles as well. So, it's just, you know, I, it, there's a lot of moving pieces. And I think the Grail series has reminded me of that, that, you know, you cannot pin this down. I've said that before, but (laughs) every week I dive into this, I'm reminded of that again. And that's as it should be, because we are each unfolding our own beautiful facet of the grail experience, even though we are deep into the paradox of unity consciousness, our individual expression of Unity consciousness. So there we have the individual and the unity together. And I just really love the idea of thinking of a diamond. And the diamond is like unity consciousness in its totality. But each of us is an expression of a particular facet on the diamond. And I bring particular qualities and you do as well, and we relate in that way. But ultimately, we are all part of that same glorious center. And so, you know, as we explore all these different facets of the feminine figures, you know, we're not going to come to any definitive conclusions. Again, this will not be pinned down. But as you travel your own walk with this material— and in your own life, you may pick up some important pointers along the way and and some new perspectives in regards to the feminine, which has always been very near and dear to what I have wanted to explore and embody in my own life. So with that, we are in the waning phases of the hunter moon. It was full right before Halloween and it's waning now. And I'm just going to, instead of a poem today, just share this really great martial arts quote that I ran across. And the reason I want to share it is because I think it really fits in well with this broader idea of touching our unity consciousness and sovereignty because we're turning the lens of our experience from facing externally to facing the interiority of our being and really coming to realize that everything that is appearing externally is because of our relationship to what is going on inside in the domain of the psyche and as we move through those layers of consciousness that this whole podcast has been exploring for months and months, as we move through those layers of consciousness, we keep shedding the habits of mind that say, go externally first, engage externally. And we're pulling back from that, pulling back from that, rewiring how we think about that, so as to really affect powerful change, not just reactionary movement to make your ego feel better like it's doing something. I'm getting better at that. It is still a challenge, but I'm doing a lot of self-talk right now, a lot of very positive, reinforcing self-dialogue that's very encouraging of these principles, and I highly recommend that if it's something that appeals to you, that resonates for you to really engage with that. And this is beyond just rote affirmations. My my self-talk changes by the day. You know, some days I'm more trained on one aspect of my life than the other. And I'll just find in the morning during my meditation certain phrases that I want to really encourage in my own thinking throughout the day, and it may shift midday and I'll I'll find another one, but encouraging that inner dialogue in relation to this journey where we are first privileging the interior space and seeing what that is mirrored as externally and only going to the interior space to affect change. Neville Goddard reminds us that the only one to change is self. And that doesn't mean we're not engaging with others, but that, now again, this is from level four consciousness, okay? Level four unity consciousness. That is meaning that if there is something happening with another individual that is not as we would wish it to be, it's mirroring something on the belief level from our own being. And that's where we go to shift that. And that's what we do in the evenings before we go to sleep with revision and envisioning and using the imagination to think lovingly and feelingly upon the events of the day as we would prefer them to have been. If there's anything that was indicative of conflict or the negative emotions. That doesn't mean we don't acknowledge feeling of all kinds, but then taking accountability for that and using the imagination lovingly on behalf of ourselves and others to move forward in what we're wanting to experience externally. So with that, this beautiful phrase I found from the martial arts world says, Set a goal so big that you can't achieve it until you grow into the person who can. I just love that so much. And, and that's really what we're doing, isn't it? I mean, there's tweaks along the way. We can be increasingly in a flow state along the way that increasingly becomes more and more familiar to how we navigate and it resonates But what we are doing is basically growing larger emotionally and with our mental disciplines than the problems. We are ignoring the problem and focusing on the growth, focusing on the expansion of our sovereignty. And when we shift that focus, when we're not trying to engage with (laughs) whack-a-mole every day, every minute of every day, Or if we find ourselves engaging with that, pulling back from it, loving ourselves, giving ourselves a break and returning to beautiful self-talk, loving self-talk and embracing those heart desires again. This is what we're about. This is what we've been training. This has been our mutual training for several months now. So all of those reminders, I'm not saying them because I think... You need them. I'm saying them because I need them. (laughs) And if they're good reminders for you, great. I just have to reinforce this in my own thinking. So often it is becoming more and more familiar. It is becoming my default. But I, you know, when you're out in the community or going to the grocery store or listening to the news, it's so easy to get seduced by the external again as being, quote-unquote, real. And it's very essential to keep returning to that sovereign center, to the well, in the narration terms of our story of the grail, returning to that precious center that is still, that is abundant, that has never known any harm, because that is the most reliable wise place from which to imagine and or take action. So as we discussed with Morgan Lefay last time, one of her big gifts in my estimation is that she is this incredible character who is very symbolic of having a foot in both worlds because we are here to enjoy a human experience and so even though we're doing all this inner work and we know that is the true home, that is our true identity, we want to have a beautiful human experience as well. And we talked last time about Morgan Le Fay. One of her major gifts is being a feminine figure who is so symbolic of being rooted in both places and effective in both places. Her ultimate identity is that of a goddess but she can move about in the world very effectively, always remembering her sovereign center. So today, I didn't know who we were going to do last time, but I have all the figures now that we're going to cover. I tried not to rush it. I tried to let them find me, and they did. And so today we're going to talk about Enid. Next time we'll talk about Ragnell, and then we'll end with Guinevere. So we're going to do four Feminine figures. And again, if you want to dive into Kathleen and John Matthews' book, Ladies of the Lake, they cover nine of them and it's just wonderful material. And I linked to their website in the last podcast's show notes. So if you need to find that, do so because they have just a wealth of information and I highly recommend their scholarship on all of these themes. So, moving into the character of Enid, I was not familiar with her, but the reason I gravitated toward her was because the Matthews talk about one of her themes being the importance of the heart and reimagining or redefining or maybe more clearly defining what the true nature of the heart is, depending on which level of consciousness you're in, things of the heart are going to mean very different things. So, you know, if you're in those early stages of victim consciousness, you know, things of the heart can be very traumatic because, you know, there can be all kinds of relationship drama and it's all being done to you and all the rest of it. You don't have any agency in that. In the next phase of agency or work ethic or by me consciousness as opposed to to me consciousness that next phase is where we you know get a lot of information about psychology and love languages and and you know the myriad endless theories about how to navigate relationship and some of them are pretty elementary and some of them get very very sophisticated and everything in between. And so that whole sphere of self-help is in that by-me consciousness. And it's wonderful to educate ourselves. I have benefited so much from that material. But then when we're moving into flow state or through-me consciousness, grace, and then into unity consciousness, love takes on another color yet again. And that's what Enid is sharing with us. And I think it's so beautiful to keep remembering that the nature of love, depending on what consciousness you're in, is different. And a great example of that is I was listening to Marianne Williamson early on in college because I had received The Course of Miracles, which is a wonderful, you know, metaphysical Study And I benefited so much from it at the time, even though I really didn't understand. I understand it more now. Um, But having said that, you know, I began looking then, for sure. But I listened to a lot of Marianne Williamson's lectures because she's a wonderful speaker and really engaging and funny and all the rest of it. But I remember here's something that I, at my own tender age you know, early 20s, I, I took out of context. And because she was talking about, in one of her lectures, you know, a couple going in for therapy. And I remember this so distinctly. She was talking about, if you're going to a therapist that keeps looking back and forth between the two of you and saying, what are your needs in the relationship? What are your needs in the relationship? She suggested, you know, somewhat humorously to leave this room. Okay, and so obviously she was talking about more the unity consciousness perspective of love, which certainly would be the course of miracles perspective of love. That's a, a much more advanced look at what love is. Okay, cuz you're you're going into the interiority to have that conversation, not looking at the other person and saying, you need to meet all my needs. But in the second phase of work ethic, by me, scholarly theory consciousness, where we're learning all kinds of perspectives and reading lots of books and going to lots of seminars, that is often the case. You know, I run across it all the time. And... There are certain aspects of that that are important and enlightening. But more and more, speaking for myself, I'm moving more into that other space where I am defining my heart's desires internally, not looking externally with my finger pointed saying, you need to meet these needs, XYZ person. Okay, so that's the shift. And I think when I heard Marianne Williamson speak to that, I didn't realize the distinction yet of the levels of consciousness. And so I think I I put a lot of pressure on myself in my early relationships. This was no fault of hers. It was just my misunderstanding of something. And and I kind of, you know, didn't allow myself to have any quote-unquote needs met. Now, again, as we move up into the more advanced unity consciousness perspective, I think I had to sit with that for a bit because I'm like, oh, I can have needs. (laughs) You know, I, yeah, this is, this is a thing. Okay, let me, I know I'm not being very clear right now. You're listening live to my processing of something, but maybe this will help. So I'm going to leave all this confusion there so that we can have another go at it here. Okay. I didn't think in a lot of my early relationship in my 20s and 30s and even into early 40s that my needs, quote unquote, were as important. And there was a lot of disappointment and a lot of drama and all the rest of it. And that's very natural. You know, I was immature in my emotional life and and growing all the time and learning new things but i think there's something so very different about realizing that the more i grew spiritually that heart's desires aren't external neediness And I think I did some spiritual bypass there for a few years where I thought, oh, I just don't have any needs. And yes, I did. (laughs) You know, there was a lot of, you know, um, desert there for a while emotionally. And I didn't know where to find the nourishment for that. And I think I was a lot in my head at the time and just maybe over-spiritualizing it. And I know that is not unique to me. But what I'm finding so beautiful is even though I had it, quote unquote, right, that I shouldn't be pointing my finger at my husband, let's say, or my partner and saying, you need to tick off all these boxes for me so I feel better. Okay, I got that bit. But then I think there was a whole area where I was saying to myself, you don't have to have any of these lovely emotional feelings met. And now I see that heart desire is a sacred thing. It is a sacred, beautiful soul compass. And to have a heart's desire... That is a way of touching our sovereign self because that is reality for the sovereign part of us. When we have a heart's desire bubbling up into our consciousness, it's because the sovereign part of us is like, this is how I live. This is who I am. And if you'll allow me to, I will take you. To the vibration to the emotional match where this happens automatically where this is engaged with in the interior space and released through imagination and the beautiful imagery of the soul and then allowed to be reflected back and so the heart's desire I I just feel almost giddy about knowing that that's a thing I can have now. Because like I said, I went through the early stages where I thought, okay, I'm not going to project that onto a person. But then I think I spiritually bypassed there for several years. But now I'm like, oh, cool. (laughs) We get to have this. It's just where are you asking for it to be realized? And if it's in your interior space that then gets reflected in your external walk, that's the sweet spot. And that's the beautiful window we have into this character of Enid. So she is telling us about the true nature of the heart in terms of like a level four unity consciousness way. And her stories are often linked with a character by the name of Eric. And and then she has other variations of other stories. It just, it's so confusing. I have to say, it's just so confusing. So I'm just going to try to summarize a little bit, because if you want to follow her trail through all the Arthurian and Grail stories, you can do that for weeks. (laughs) But basically, there are some themes that characterize her contribution and, and her story arc. And that is, she is the daughter of a Vassar who has lost his land. So there's poverty in her home and in her situation, but she's very beautiful. And it's not even so much a physical beauty, although she is physically beautiful. It's that she has a sovereign state about her that's always present and people pick up on that. And it has nothing to do with her external surroundings because she's often in you know, a tattered dress or she doesn't have a dowry, things like that. And so when her suitor comes, who in many of the stories is named Eric, you know, he's taken, yes, by her beauty, but more of this sovereignty about her, this inner beauty that shines through, this inner confidence, this knowing that she is regal, And I love that so much. I love that reflection of the heart in her external world. And she is often associated with the heart, H-A-R-T, meaning like the white stag. The white stag is a very common character story arc element in a lot of the grail myths and legends, too, where there's a chase or you know, the stag appearing and often, you know, symbolizing something important's about to happen. Okay. A lot of times she is related to the story arc of the white heart as well, the white stag. And so that sovereignty, that reflection of the heart, H-A-R-T and H-E-A-R-T, they're often connected in her stories. And the colors of alchemy, which we have talked about, red, white, black, we've talked about those in the past. They're so common in folk and fairy tales and in myth. And she's often in a black dress, you know, showing her rags. Then she's in a red dress when she is betrothed or honored in some way. And she can be associated with white, you know, the purification with the white stag, etc. So The colors in her stories of red, white, and black are very symbolic of the alchemy of her character. And I'll read here a passage from the Matthews book about her role. And they say, Enid's task is parallel to Ragnall's, and we'll discuss Ragnall next week which is to determine what women most desire. Again, we'll get to that next week. Enid must determine how love is served. How love is served. The answer, like the answer to the Grail question, is unequivocable by love alone. So love with a capital L is Enid's gift to us because she is able to touch upon Love itself's nature, not our human contrivances of what that word or emotion should be. So, you know, we have these really all-encompassing, important questions. You know, whom does the grail serve? That's a really important question. And we're talking about life with a capital L, you know, the self with a capital S, the sovereignty of the inner divine who does love serve who gets to decide what love's character is love itself that is enid's message to us and a lot of her story arc she has to go through all kinds of stuff like she's always sort of on the run and and you know there's all this she doesn't have an easy time you know, she just doesn't get to sit and be peaceful all the time. She seems to be on the road a lot and traveling with knights and encountering with all kinds of folks. But she is bringing the love qualities, love with a capital L, to her expression through her sovereignty of what love should be. And although we wouldn't necessarily enjoy all the chaos she has to go through, that is the constancy of her gift to us, is that she's really in touch with love in its divine sense and, and how that can be expressed most beautifully in human relationship. Their quote goes on to say that Cretien's text ends with the coronation of Eric and Enid is both significant and appropriate. The games of sovereignty have been truly won by Eric, and the rigorous trials mean that Enid and Eric can exchange their love in equal measure. So it's very much about the exploration of love. And, you know, consider this for the medieval context. It's not just a conquering thing. It's not just the knights are defending it. Um, It's not raping and pillaging. It's none of those aspects of control or only defining the feminine characters by extension of their masculine counterparts. She is an equal, and she is an equal to her partner because she is in touch with love itself. And so that she has... To go back to our martial art quote that opened this, she has expanded beyond even the context of her time. You know, being in medieval times, her character has expanded to encompass the very nature of love. So this is her gift to us. And and when I think about how we would like to relate that to those six figures of the psyche that the feminine often... Shows up in in our human walk. I'll just read through those again to remind us of those categories. And I've already indicated how I have made my own journey through, you know, maybe thinking I needed to bear somebody else's burden in relationship for their mother complex. You know, I was taking on the negative qualities thinking, oh, that's my fault. I need to fix that. Or, you know, not realizing that I can look to my interior and find my divine center, my divine feminine center. So let me read these again just to increase our overall awareness of where our idea of love might be rattling around in our psyche. And, of course, in terms of the feminine figures from Robert Johnson's material you know we have the human mother which is just your biological mother you know she has positive and negative qualities and it just is you know your work as an adult then is to process that and live a rich life because you take agency for whatever kind of mothering you had it is what it is and you move on from that if you don't you get a mother complex and we all have all parts of these you know when you're triggered that's your mother complex. Your complex is the unresolved stuff of your childhood, usually that you get really pissed about <laughs> and and triggered often in relationship about. Then we have the mother archetype where we touch that beautiful bounty, um, sort of the sovereign empress, the feminine half of God, the cornucopia of life. We have the fair maiden, which is like the inspirer, the anima, that a lot of times we'll see that a muse will be cast upon a human person. You know, a lot of times artists will do that. They'll say that so-and-so is their muse. Well, okay, I guess to an extent that can be helpful and certainly cities or places can be muses or different periods of time can be inspiration. But a human being, the human part of us can't carry that archetype. So ultimately, we need to find the muse within. Otherwise, this stuff gets problematic. And then there's the human wife or partner. Again, just like the human wife or mother, that human side of us, even though we all have our divine side, that human side of us can't, like, take the projection of somebody's archetype. You know, you've got to find that internally for yourself. And then just let your human partner, in the context of that role, be your human partner. And then Sophia, which is the goddess of wisdom. Again, that other half of the masculine face of God. We're getting beyond concepts, you know, where we don't even have language. But many of the wisdom traditions talk about wisdom ultimately being feminine. And again, that belongs to all of us. So when we're looking at this idea of love that Enid represents, she knows what love with a capital L is actually about. And when we think of those beautiful qualities of the well, about mystery and hospitality and justice, when we link those ideas to love, You know, I am a strong believer, and you'll just see my bias in this statement right here. There's so much in the culture right now about being sex positive and, you know, honoring sex workers and their rights to, you know, safe circumstances and health care and, you know, no shame around those sorts of things. All of that is important all of that is true. All of that in a cultural sense. I would want that for any person. You know, I don't want there to be homeless people. I don't want there to be people without resources. I don't want any of these things to happen where there's not a loving embrace, you know, sort of a, of a social net where there's safety and people are being honored because they are human Having said that, I am put off by so much of the noise in the culture right now around the idea of love and around the idea of sexuality because there's no mystery. And ultimately, for me, in my own walk, and then certainly in the context of the growing consciousness Mystery is essential for love. And I think Esther Perel or Esther Perel, her work really hints at this when she's talking about her book, Mating in Captivity, and she talks about intimacy actually being the quote unquote, you know, enemy or adversary of that spark between people. You know, she's really hit on something there because we need that mystery between us and and within us. We need that mystery so that not everything is just outwardly exposed and talked about or overly emotional, overly, you know, connected to feeling. If you're looking for your partner to be all your intimacy, that is going to smother something really important. Look internally for your intimacy And then enjoy that reflection in a partner. But have that satisfied internally so as to delight in it externally. Again, at level four consciousness, this is what we're talking about. Um, But this idea of mystery, when there's so much sex-positive stuff out there, I feel like that's really in that buy me consciousness space where, you know, of course there should be Safety and health care, and all, all these things, and honor, and no shame, and all the rest of it. But having said that, love is so much larger than that, and it's so much more beautiful and so much more mysterious. And that indefinable, elusive mystery about love, particularly sexual love between partners or whatever, that's the juice. That's the spark. That's the incredible dance. And it's so important to have that. And, of course, we can talk about love in, in other senses, too. You know, your self-love, your sense of confidence and belonging to yourself is so essential to meet those needs internally, again, in level four consciousness, so that you can experience being the priority externally. If you make yourself the inner divine priority, you will get to experience being the external priority of your beloved. Level four is taking us to those places. So, you know, again, depending on where you're engaging this idea of love, at what consciousness, it's going to look a little different. But Relating back to these feminine principles of mystery, I find mystery of of love to be such an important part of its magnetism, and that's really lost in the culture right now, I would argue, and I want that. You know, like, even in the music, you know, um, it's just, yes, you can be sex positive, and Women should be able to be sexual and not be shamed for that, as men can be outwardly sexual and not be shamed for that. I get that. I get that. But beyond that, beyond that, we're missing something really important if we don't evolve past that and get in touch with the mystery. Not secrecy, but mystery. That is a different thing. That is a very different thing. So I think this honoring of the mystery is an important piece. Hospitality, remember, we're not, that's the word that's used in, in the prequel poem, hospitality. But we're likening that idea to the abundance that exists in the well, that that exists in the divine space where the fullness of the heart's desire, is met automatically, spontaneously, and to the most lush degree. You know, you don't have to skimp. <laughs> you have the most wonderful well of spontaneous fulfillment. Only a level four consciousness experience of love could provide that because you are in touch with the divine. And then that can be acted out externally in beautiful partnership with another, or with a work of art that you're creating, or with a business that you're giving birth to, or in your own self-expression with dance or the arts. You know, there's lots of ways that that can be mirrored back to us. But to move beyond the space of compromise. You know, in the work ethic, scholarly, workshop, books space, where we're learning all about different models of relationship, there's often compromise and, you know, giving something up or navigating your relationship by seeing the other's perspective. That's important work. That's important. But to retrain the mind at the level of unity consciousness when you are going into the interior space, you get the full deal. We are not skimping in any kind of way. No compromise is required. And that is radical thinking. And you can't be a jerk and go to that space. You know, like you really have to do your emotional work and, and not get triggered and Take responsibility for your thoughts and your emotions and be able to come at that fullness from a place of stillness, from a place of stillness and inner divinity to to even know that that fullness is truly possible, that it's not going to be, you know, compromise that is often talked about in terms of relationship at the lower levels, so again we we move through these phases and learn different faces of the of the expression of love but when we're getting to love with a capital L you get the full deal you get the full deal and you come to it very humbly and you come to it having done a lot of relinquishing of old ideas about you know selfishness or negative thinking or trying to satisfy only ego needs. So it's a radical new way of thinking, but you come at that from the beautiful hospitality, the beautiful fullness of the abundance of love and what that can look like mirrored back to you in the external space. And then justice. You know, a lot of times as we move through the phases of love, we have a lot of heartache. A lot of relationship drama gets termed as love, and it's not really love, but you know what I mean. Going through that alchemical container of having a beloved and cooking down into your essence through that journey is a big one partnership is a big container and a big opportunity to see the mirror of your beliefs coming back at you and letting old ideas go letting that fall away so that you are really growing in your expanse to outshine any relational issues When you're getting into that level four consciousness space, you're growing beyond it. It's not about having external conflict anymore. Now, in the lower levels, are there important ways to communicate? Are there important ways to address conflict? Are there important ways to talk to each other, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, yes, and yes. But as we're moving into level four, these are internal conversations. These are internal dynamics that are mirrored back at us through relationship of all kinds, you know, not just a romantic partner. But the justice I would offer only increases as consciousness increases because there's a lot of give and take in the psychology space, in the psychology consciousness of love and having your heart's desire and delight met fully Having the justice of that, because you, in essence, are giving it to yourself only to be reflected back at you, that is ultimately the place where we will have the fullest experience of love. And again, that is Enid's gift to us. So one thing I want to share that is really cool about this Kathleen and John Matthews book, Ladies of the Lake, is for each of the nine figures, they created a meditation, a guided meditation, where you can experience that particular character and what colors her contribution to the canon of the Arthurian and the Grail legends. And I highly recommend, you know, exploring all nine of them because they have something beautiful, each of them, to offer And I want to read from the book, Enid's Meditation, to finish out today's podcast with that. So this is John and Kathleen Matthews' meditation on Enid, and it brings the idea of an ever-expanding love and and how that grows larger with time and, and with consciousness. And it brings in that symbolism of the white heart, the stag. And I just think it's a beautiful window to encourage you to engage with this book and and read the other meditations. I don't want to read too much, you know, because I don't have copyright for it. But I wanted to share this one section of her meditation, you know, in in the hopes that you'll read their other meditations for the other figures, because they're beautiful. And they have such a Firm basis in their understanding of all these particular feminine figures. So I want to share that with you as we end today and just let it wash over you um, because there's so much about the idea of love that is reimagining itself and calling to us from deeper parts of our soul and our knowing and our sovereignty. And this meditation does a beautiful job of sort of capturing that in lush imagery and and important questions. So if you can close your eyes and just let this beautiful imagery wash over you, do so if you can do that. And if not, if you're driving or you know walking, listening to this, just enjoy the images, come back to them later if you'd rather. Or just let this be the first sitting with it and then return to it when you have some quiet time to sit with the images more. The Path of the White Heart. Before you is an ancient woodland, one of the primal fortresses of the foretime. Leading towards it is a pathway which enters the tangled trees, but you are not encouraged by this. Here is no tame wood with neatly forested trees at serried intervals, but a thick forest in which you will have no map. Discouraged, fearful of becoming lost, you begin to turn away when an extraordinary sight meets your eyes. It is a white heart. Astounded by its sudden brilliance flashing towards the trees, you are upon the path before your mind has even assented. The heart enters the trees and you follow, Moving fast to keep it in sight, for it is your only guide in this uncharted wildness. The path twists and turns and is frequently overgrown. You cannot leap over such obstructions like the fleet-footed deer ahead of you, so you go slower. Brambles catch your sleeve, causing you annoyance. No sooner has one obstacle been overcome than there seem to be more and more. The white heart is distant now and the path less clear. You strain to see how far ahead it has gone, and can only just glimpse the golden swish of its tail bounding away in the distance. Without the heart, the path is difficult to find, and you strive to find the way ahead. You have clearly wandered from your way, and you berate yourself for being so foolish as to have entered the forest in the first place. The trees, which seem just obstacles to your pursuit, now seem to draw you in. You cannot hear the bird song that ought to flood these branches above you. Lost in a lonely wood, you stumble onwards looking for a sign of life. You see a hopeful clearing and strike towards it. Something shines from the branches and you make for it. In the clearing, you find a perfect crystal mirror hanging. You walk around it to view this strange object. What has set it here? For what purpose? "'It is a beautiful thing, catching the sun's rays, "'but there is no one to appreciate it here. "'Would anyone miss it? "'As you go to detach it from its hanging, "'the crystal mirror seems to come to life, "'uttering sounds from deep within. "'Disquieted, you drop your hands quickly. "'The reverberations are quite clear. "'The mirror has just spoken to you. "'It swings and turns to face you "'so that you have a good view of its face.' This is even more disquieting because it does not return your reflection. Look closely and you will see the face of one you once knew well and professed to love. Reflected in the crystal mirror is the face of a past friend or lover whose love you refused or betrayed. Their image comes before you now and despite the painful memories which are invoked you are enabled to speak and answer the reflection in a way which heals the hurt. Let that face come before you now, and without recrimination or guilt, speak and make answer to the questions asked by the mirror. What did I give you? What did you give me? Consider the nature of the exchange that you experienced at that time and make your peace with the image reflected. You notice that beside you in the clearing is a little stream which runs throughout the forest. Cleanse the crystal mirror, which you now have no desire to take with you, with some of the water, uttering words of blessing and farewell to the image that lies within Shaken by this encounter, you turn to your path and begin to see it clearly. After walking a little further, you are confirmed of your way by a tip of shed antler upon the path, which you pick up. With great determination, you hurry onwards, confident of finding the magical beast. Then you hear the crying of a little girl. She runs out of the dense undergrowth and begs you to find her plaything, which is lost. You would rather go onwards and do not welcome the squalling of a child but you turn aside to help her. She leads you into what seems the thickest of the undergrowth, full of nettles, thorns, and thistles. Why was she playing in this place anyway, you think? Scrabbling around under bushes in the densest scrub with the antler as a pick, you find a golden ball which has rolled in here. The girl clasps her hands with glee when you return it to her. She tosses it up and bids you catch it. You have no time for a game, but you oblige her. As the golden ball enters your hands, it splits in two, and out flies not one, but a flight of birds. They rise, singing into the forest, until it is filled with birdsong. Of the girl, there's no sign. You travel further along the path, walking more slowly now to listen to the newfound song of the woods. The trees seem more friendly and you look about you with appreciation. The path is easier to follow and your haste less urgent. Almost unaware, you arrive in a clearing where the meandering stream curves. Here is the white heart, drinking unperturbed. Now that it is still, you can observe it better. Its hide is brilliantly white, its antlers and hooves touched with gold. It raises its head and regards you with lambent, intelligent eyes. It is no shock when it addresses you. Many have sought me, hunters for my hide, kings for my golden horn. But only lovers find me. I am the guardian of these woods, and none can come further in without answering to me. What is your soul-unchanging desire? What lies at the heart of your life? Answer me that, and I will let you ride upon my back. The deep and beautiful voice urges you to answer in your own words. You look into your own heart and find the words. A tear rolls down the cheek of the white heart as you speak. Come now, mount upon my back, and I will take you to your sole desire. With awe and trembling, you stand upon a stone and mount, letting the white heart bear you across the stream into the depths of the forest. You hold tightly to the antlers and close your eyes so fast is your flight. You find yourself in the inmost depths of the forest. "'In a clearing which is shrouded by mist, "'the white heart sets you down and nudges you to enter. "'Fearful of the unknown, "'you pass the magical boundary of this place "'and find yourself within an apple orchard. "'Within it sits a woman in a red dress. "'Her lack of ornament seems to enhance her strange beauty, "'for she is white of skin and black of hair. "'There is a silver bed beside her which is empty.' The place is so peaceful and restful that you wish you could lie down, but that is not why you have come. You notice that a horn hangs from a nearby tree. The woman speaks. Desire is a bridge to another country. Many have striven to enforce their desire in this place, but all have faded away. What is your wish? To lie upon this bed and dream the fulfillment of your sole desire? Or to blow the horn yonder. If you would be free of selfish desire, if you would know how love is served, then take the horn and blow it. But before you do, know that nothing in your life will remain as it was afterwards. If you are fearful of change, weigh well these words before setting the horn to your lips. It would be better for you to lie upon the bed and dream than to blow the horn unworthily. You weigh the decision. To blow the horn, you must relinquish your own desire. To achieve it, you must lie upon the bed. Is this a trick? You think back to the white heart and know that it is not, for how could a beast of such purity and wisdom lead you astray? You think upon your avowed desire and test it. Lie upon the bed. If that is what you have chosen and watch the images that form in dream. Take the horn, if that is what you have chosen, and blow with all your might, paying close attention to what is happening. Take time to experience this now. It is time to attend once more. The woman rises and takes your hand, friend and loved one, May the desire of your heart be fulfilled in every place. I am she whom you rejected in the crystal mirror. I am she whose toy you retrieved in the forest. I am she who led you here in the shape of the white heart. Know that I am Enid, the lady of the enclosed garden. Keep such a place as this within your heart for the healing of the world and let those into it as need delivering from their own hatefulness. She anoints your brow with a pungent, bitter-smelling oil. By the balm of love's pain may all desires be purified. She garlands your neck with apple blossom. By the grace of love's gladness may all be brought to joy. She salutes you and lets you go you pass through the magical mist and into the forest where the white heart takes you up once again and delivers you to the forest edge. The heart speaks once more. Go gladly and be at peace. May the love of the Lady Enid live forever in your heart. In your own words, bid farewell to love's messenger and return to your own time and place. I want to leave you with those images now. Thanks for sharing today with me. And until next time, take good care. Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying this podcast, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if my work is nourishing your heart and imagination, consider supporting the Apothecary Podcast. Just follow the links to make a contribution. And for the full scope of my projects and offerings, including my weekly newsletter, visit laurigreen.net.